Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Kukowski. Stacy is Senior Lecturer in Conflict Studies and Co Director of the Centre for the Study of Divided Societies at King's College London. She's the author of two research monographs. The first, Secular War, Myths and Religion, Politics and Violence, published by I.B. Taurus in 2013. And more recently, the fabulous Religion, War and Israel's Secular Millennials, Being Reasonable, published by Manchester University Press uh, only a few short weeks ago, I believe. She's published in a range of of journals pertaining to the Middle East, uh, political sociology, critical security studies, and I'm absolutely delighted that she's been able to join us today. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to join you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that that this is coming in the middle of what is proving to be a rather hectic term um, with all the challenges of, of COVID and moving online. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to spend a bit more of your time in front of a screen. But I think it's been, um, it's been fabulous reading your work and, uh, and reading your, your latest book. So I've been really, really looking forward to this conversation. But Stacey, as, as always, I, I should start with a question of what got you interested in, in the Middle East, political sociology, and, and academia more broadly, please. Ah, well, the Middle East. Um, so something I talk about in the latest book is about generational memory and how uh, the events, the important events we live through shape how we see the world. And I, I suppose a critical part of my generational memory was um being in my final year at university when 9-11 happened and, you know, suddenly having an awakening and, you know, thinking that I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about the Middle East. I, I wanted to understand um, this context. And um, I suppose after uh, working in the NGO world for, for a little while, I, I went back and, um, and did that and, and tried to understand the uh, um, the post 9-11 uh, context and I guess I'm, I'm still a student and still learning I suppose as, as we all are. <laughs> Aren't we all, yeah. What were you studying at, at the time? Uh, at university? Yeah. Uh, at an undergraduate? Oh gosh, well as uh, as an undergraduate at university I was um, studying philosophy and I was interested in amazing. Me too. And, you know whether whether this computer exists. <laughs> so Fantastic. Quite a, quite a shift. Mm. I too did metaphysics, and and I remember the the abiding essay question. I think from that time was the uh, to do with the unreality of time. So oh, wonderful. Um, we we both had quite the departures. I think. Mm. So it's, you know, it's good. I think to um, to. Do different things. Oh, of course, of course. So you you, you completed your your ruminations on metaphysics, and then you you went into the NGO world and and did something related to the region, or was this something again completely different? No, no, I was I was working on um, children's rights, um, right, and at the same time um, studying for a, a master's in uh, international peace studies. And that's really got what got me interested in in peace and conflict studies, and also in um, in the study of religion. Sure. Um, 
And then so I decided that I wanted to do a PhD in, uh, in international studies and try to understand a bit more about the, the post 9-11 conflict uh, context. And um, my PhD was about how British policymakers understood political Islamism and, and Islam more broadly. Um, and uh, you can't really understand that without understanding Britain as a culturally Christian, but also um, religiously plural and, and secular society. That's um, fascinating. And so that got me. Mm. And where was that, Stacey? Uh, that was at Cambridge. At Cambridge. Fantastic. Mm. And I guess that would be where you, you started encountering ideas of, of secularity, would it be? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my work sort of led me in, um, in that direction. Um, and when I was at Cambridge, I also um, became a, a co-director um, of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, which was the first um, global network to um, study what it is uh, to live as a person um, in conversation with, but on, on the outskirts, uh, perhaps you could say, of, of traditional religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and my own interests were about trying to use violence and war as a way of um, rethinking that as a, as a category. Okay. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that, please? I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, so I think one thing we have started to get a better handle on as scholars is the, the relationship between, or the various relationships between religion, nationalism, um, political violence. But one thing we don't know a great deal about um, is the secular. And the secular is really important for trying to understand, for example, you know, how attached are people who are, you know, maybe describe themselves as indifferent to religion or not particularly religious to a given sacred site? Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences then for um, peaceful coexistence at that site, resolving conflict over that site? Um, I became interested, I've been long fascinated with the question, you know, that old uh, adage that Ernie Pyle, a, a Second World War um, uh, war correspondent, coined that, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. And um, so I became interested in, you know, if, if you aren't sure that uh, that there's a, a god or, or that, you know, some, someone's there to save you, you know, what? how do you deal with um, living through war and violence? So some of the, those are some of the large questions I've kind of been trying to chip away at in, in my various publications to think about how we might develop a larger theory about um, violence and war and secular modernity. Amazing. I mean, this this is so many clear parallels, I think, to be drawn with your, your philosophical work um, in, in what you're doing there and those broader research questions, which obviously have a metaphysical and perhaps existential dimension to them as well. It's yeah, really, really fascinating. Um, is there a is there a point in which those types of questions were were triggered? Was there a, a particular event or a series of events, or is this something internal that 
that started to, to push you in these types of directions? I mean, they're not the, the typical types of questions asked in perhaps the more mainstream approaches to international peace building, for instance. my finger on anything precise um, that got me thinking about that. I think it was just kind of encountering people who lived through war and discussing with them their own experiences. I mean, um, one of the things I remember from doing interviews for my first book on uh, with British policymakers and I was interested in a, you know, I'm, I'm talking about British elites, but I was interested in a sociological approach. You know, they, they are embedded in society. Um, and people, I found this in interviews. I found it in, um, in transcripts uh, of debates that people always brought it back to um, when they were talking about, you know, political Islamism, jihad, terrorism, back to themselves and back to their own encounters with um, with religion. And I found that really fascinating that the self was entwined in these in these questions. And then, mm. you know, as I began to talk to people who have lived through through war, and I suppose I, I have an interest in people's um, sort of philosophical outputs, <laughs> um, outlooks on life, maybe because of my philosophy degree. And yeah. so um, that's kind of how those those questions developed for me. And I, um, I'm thinking ahead now to my to my next book and, you know, thinking about developing that further in a kind of larger comparative um, way about what, how do people's philosophical frameworks start to shift after an encounter um, with uh, with war and violence. And it's something um, I've been thinking about uh, with, with colleagues about, you know, um, there are things in life that, um, you know, whether it's um, having a child or going through illness or indeed living through war that, you know, shape people's um, views on life, their their ethics, their ideas about the meaning of life. And that's what I'd like to write the next book about. That sounds wonderful. And I applaud your ambition, having just wrapped up this, this recent one. You have your clear ideas for the next book already laid out. Wonderful. Uh, it's good to have a project. <laughs> well, let's talk about this um, this recent book, Stacey, if that's okay, please. Because I think it's absolutely fascinating, and it, it obviously speaks to, to many of the things that you've just set out there. So the book is titled Religion, War, and Israel's Secular Millennials, and published by Manchester University Press. It's absolutely fascinating. But for people who've not had a chance to read it yet, and I strongly recommend that, that you try and find time and opportunity to do so, can you just tell people a little bit about what you're trying to do in the book, please? Um, sure. So the central question um, that I was interested in was what was it like to come of age as a young secular Jew after the collapse of the Oslo peace process, um, at a time when we've seen an intensification of ethno-religious nationalism among Jewish Israelis and, and Palestinians. Yeah. Um, this was, you know, my, again, grad of my interest um, 
in the secular and violence. Um, I was trying to, I suppose, challenge my own um, thinking about that because Israel is a um, is a hard case. It is not uh, like a Western uh, secular liberal um, context. Um, so the the research it, itself was with this um, particular demographic group. Um, uh, there are approximately 860,000 Hinani Jewish millennials in, in Israel today. I was trying to understand um, their generational memory of growing up in the in the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, how that shaped their understanding of themselves as um, as secular Jews living in Israel in this um, particular moment, um, and also how they thought about the um, ethno-religious nationalism of others, uh, both both Palestinians and Jewish Israelis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a uh, uh, there was a larger study by Almag and Almag uh, published in 2014 about this group. Um, which gives a kind of a broad understanding of, of the social group. I was interested in drilling down to the, into these particular issues about um, religious nationalism and, um, and secularity. And in studying those things, um, it also gives you a perspective on um, this group as a as a whole, um, how they're situated uh, within Israel, how they articulate their identity, how they they see the future of, um, of occupation. And what I found was, and this is something that is, um, this is already known, uh, so this aspect wasn't, wasn't new, um, but that, you know, the, the population as a whole is becoming um, more conservative relative to where they uh, they were in the 90s during the Oslo process. Um, there's a lot of um, speculation about why the society is moving um, further to further to the right. Um, within uh, Israel, this is often spoken about about moving to the moving to the center. Um, I was interested. I became interested over time in what were similarities um, across the political spectrum. Why, um, even those who, you know, said they were on the left, um, understood the occupation as as uh, reasonable but regrettable um, for now. And one of the things I found was that this um, one an aspect that was part of the larger post-Oslo landscape that had been overlooked um, was what was happening in terms of um, being a secular Jew in Israel today and how um, that was evolving for the post-Oslo generation. Fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. I have so many questions and yet there's so little time. But if I may, I I wonder if you can just tell us if I put these two together, just a bit of background context, Stacey, please. What's the, 
the sort of the demographics of this group that you're interested in? What sort of size of group are we talking about? What's their their location? Are they spread equally around the the country? Are they predominantly grounded in in particular areas? And what is it? Do you think about oh, maybe the better way of putting it is 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 there something particular and perhaps unique about secularity within Judaism? You pointed out that there was a there's a clear distinction between um, secularity in the West and and in Israel, but is there something about secularity in Judaism in particular that that is of note to people reading this book? Okay. Two questions there. Let me see if I can I can do them all. Please remind me if I if I drop. <laughs> sure. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. So um, this uh, this group of um, of millennial Hilonim, as I said, they're um, about eight hundred and sixty thousand uh, of the overall population. Uh, Hilonim are approximately forty percent of the population. Then you have um, about uh, a quarter who are traditional Jewish, um, about um, 18, 19% who are um, some variety of Orthodox, and um, there are about 19% of, of the population who are um, who are not Jewish, um, including uh, including Muslims, Christian, Jews, and uh, Druze, and others. Um, so the perception is that this group uh, is uh, largely Ashkenazi of European descent. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we know, are about two-thirds um, of European descent, but um, uh, another third uh, Mizrahi, so Jews um, from uh, the Middle East. This isn't just a, um, a religious sector, as it's called, uh, in Israel. This is, uh, they are... I conceive of them as a, a religio class. Um, they are mainly middle class, um, largely but not exclusively urban. So you have um, uh, people who um, uh, live on uh, kibbutzim um, or on a mishav um, and live in live in more rural areas. Um, politically, they're fairly evenly split between um, center, uh, right, and left. So there is a perception, I suppose, within Israel and outside Israel that these are, you know, um, people who are are mainly leftist. Um, That's not the case. They're um, split across the political spectrum. Um, In terms of, I guess, um, the secularity of Hilonim versus the secularity um, in uh, maybe in, in the UK or Western Europe or, or North America. Um, in we can't talk about Israel as a as a secular state. You know, religion and um, nationhood are intertwined. The, the Halakha, Jewish law, um, shapes uh, shapes state law. Um, there has been a change to the the basic law in 2018, reiterating the um, uh, the Jewish identity of of the state. Um, but even in terms of people's everyday lives, um, Charles Liebman, the sociologist, talked about uh, Jewish popular culture, 
and uh, that that is the case. So it's it's a secularity, but it's a, a Jewish secularity. Rezan talks about the a Jewish valence to the secular in Israel, and I think that's um, I think that's the right way um, to to put it. Um, what I talk about in the book is that. Um, there's something, I think, somewhat distinctive about this millennial generation of secular Jews. Um, and I can talk more about, um, about what that is and what's happening religiously, but I think one of the things we need to highlight is the role of the, role of the Internet and that people are able to engage in forms of, um, you know, self-experimentation and self-formation kind of directly through accessing um, aspects of Western, liberal, global, millennial culture, um, and it's not just going, you know, through this vector of um, Jewish secularity, which has been um, developing among thinkers, particularly in Europe since the 19th century. Sure. That's really, really interesting. Again, there's so many things to, to pick up on with regard to, well, the, the Israeli context, the millennial context, the, the idea of coming of age, the role of, of societal, technological factors. Um, I mean, there's so many things to, to, be, to be picked up on that we, we really don't have time to, to discuss. But one of the things, perhaps moving, moving the conversation slightly, Stacey, that I really enjoyed in the book is this stressing the sort of the role of the imaginary, um, the role of time and the, the role of space in all of this. Can you say a little bit more about that? For, again, for people who've not read the book, what is it that you're, you're doing when you're deploying these, these ideas? things that I'm I'm trying to do is to talk about that there's a shared habitus, um, I'm using Borges' idea mm-hmm. of habitus, shared habits uh, among this group. And that these habits are, are shared regardless of their place um, on the political spectrum. They're shaped not only by their political context that they grew up in, but also, also um, the religious context. Um, he asked me about space. One thing I, I particularly uh, talk about in one of the chapters is um, this discussion of the Jewish homeland, which has been um, sort of revitalized in the past um, uh, in the past decade. Um, and that um, this group has mixed ideas about space. You know, they feel attached to the homelands, to particular types of parts of the homelands, and yet the sort of um, depth of attachment, there's a strong attachment to particular places. Um, and they aren't what we would assume that, for example, there's a very strong attachment to, to Tel Aviv. And that maybe um, goes against the, the narrative, the national narrative about um, attachment to, for example, Jerusalem or, or to the West Bank. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting. I, it provokes a memory in me of, of one of the first times that I was in Israel and speaking to, to an Israeli, he, he was doing the the 
sort of introduction to his country, as, as you may well find on, on arriving in any place. And he, he used the phrase, you go to Jerusalem to pray, you go to Tel Aviv to party, and you go to Haifa to sleep. And it struck me, and it, it sort of remained with me for a while, that that highlights the, the myriad often, or myriad in many ways competing understandings and ideas about space on the basis of, of an individual's context, background, um, time. And those were, were some things that, that I, was, I was really thinking about when I, was, when I was reading your book, because some of the ideas and some of the data that you've got runs contrary to, to some of the ideas that, that many people might have initially sort of approached the topic with. There are um, a lot of different books you could have written about this subject. Yeah. Um, and in the in the introduction to to the book, in fact, I go through and talk about all <laughs> the alternative um, books that you you might have um, you might have written about. Um, uh, for example, these uh, these nation state debates that were very prominent or. Um, the relationship between ultra-Orthodox Jews and um, and uh, secular Jews in Israel, mm-hmm. or the relationship between um, different types of traditional Jews in the state. Um, you could have talked about, for example, the women of women of the Wall, um, uh, the sort of um, uh, debates about uh, LGBT rights in in Israel. What I wanted to do and to say was that was that um, these things are not happening in parallel. That there are intra-Jewish Israeli religious controversies that are going on, and there is the situation um, with uh, with the occupation and the relations with Palestinians. And it's not as though. Um, people deal with one thing and then the other. We're just the same person and we move within these these different spheres. And I am arguing that um, both of these these different fields, uh, social fields, uh, Bourdieu, uh, how Bourdieu theorizes them, um, people are moving between them and they're influenced, influenced by them. Um, and so I was trying to talk about and, and find ways to look at that intersection and then also think about the relationship um, between violence and the secular. So the the four case studies. One is about um, one is about the army, about the Israel Defense Forces and, and Jewish consciousness education in the in the army. How um, sort of young people are going and they're they're you know formed through the army as Israeli citizens, but I also argue that they're being formed as as secular Jews in certain ways because they come into contact. Um, with their Jewish others in the society, often for the first time. Mm. Um, and I've got a chapter uh, that talks about um, talks about uh, Palestinians and um, uh, sort of their perceptions of of Islam, of jihad, trying to problematize these. I've got a chapter on um, 
their understandings of, of space, looking particularly at Jerusalem and the Haram al-Sharif, Temple Mount. And then I've got um, something um, which touches on my, you know, my interest in this idea of no atheists in foxholes, but, you know, what is it like um, to live as a, you know, a, a Jewish secular person um, through through violence. Um, and so these are, um, this is just how I've, I've carved up the book. I think there are other ways to write it, but I think these four stories um, that I'm trying to tell tell us um, something about the relationship between Jewish secularity and, and violence, the intersection, and also end up telling us a story about, you know, this generation and what it was like to um, to live as a as a young person through a context where there has been considerable violence, um, five wars, uh, and that's very significant. Yeah, it is, and I I think those those different stories that you tell are absolutely fascinating. They're so very rich, um, intellectually provocative, stimulating. It raises so many important points that can be that can be used to reflect on a whole host of things beyond the state of Israel, of course. And I, I think it's it's wonderful. I strongly recommend uh, that people get hold of, of a copy of it. And I, I, I just want to thank you, Stacey. It's been wonderful talking to you and, and reading the book. It's it's something that's, that's given me a great deal to think about, and I've, I've taken a great deal out of it. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Simon. Thanks very much for your interest. Thank you, Stacey. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.